0: Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Good morning. I, uh, I already had someone tell me that uh, I'm a bad person that leader because we showed a video last Sunday for Sweatpants Sunday and I'm not wearing sweatpants. So I, I apologize if you hate me or think I'm a hypocrite. I just wanted to wear jeans today. I don't have a better answer than that. But the point of that video and the point of Sweatpants Sunday was, was that you guys would not feel judged. So if you're in sweatpants today, know that you are loved and we're all jealous of your life and we want to be you. So uh, thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks for wearing sweatpants and I'm excited to uh, to continue our, our series in, in Nehemiah. I wanted to uh, tell us uh, this morning, I, I looked at a, a a website this week, a website called One Red Paperclip, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a Canadian blogger started this blog. Uh, I know that we're tempted as Americans to not trust things that are Canadian, but I promise this guy's all right. All right. So um, this, this website, One Red Paperclip, um, was by a blogger named Kyle McDonald, and in 2005, uh, he started with, exactly as the website says, One Red Paperclip, and through a series of trades, uh, he ended up trading from that paperclip uh, into owning a house. Uh, it, it's uh, a, a game that maybe you've heard of Maybe you played uh, in church or in a youth club back in the day But it, it's called Bigger or Better And he was basically doing that game And so he started with a paper clip And just kind of put it out in his blog And said, hey, I want to trade this for something cooler Something bigger or better And he, he let it be known from the beginning The point of this is that I want to end up with a house uh, Some of us would look at that guy and think that's not possible Apparently he thought he, he could do it And so I want to read you um, some of the things that, that this guy traded for, because I think it's pretty crazy. We uh, we used to play this this game at my home church when I was growing up. And uh, one time we came back to the church with a, a working copy machine uh, that we were just like wheeling up the sidewalk. And my youth pastor was like, "What are we supposed to do with a copy machine?" You know. Uh, so it, I thought that was like the all time record. I thought that we were awesome, but we never got a house. So these are the these are the trades that uh, that Kyle McDonald made uh, to work his way up to a house. Uh, he he started in Vancouver, Canada, where he's from, and he he traded the, the, the paperclip that he had had after he let it be known. Hey, I want to I trade this thing. I want to get rid of it. And uh, someone gave him a, a fish pen, right? You got to start small. You got to start somewhere. It's a pretty cool fish pen, as you can see. Possibly the greatest fish pen of all time. But that's where, that's where he started. And so he went from a paperclip uh, to, a, to a fish pen. And, and actually, the, the same day, he, he got the word out in his blog. And, and someone said, hey, I will trade you a hand-sculpted doorknob which I think doesn't sound normal. And as you can see, it uh, looks really weird. I think we've even got a picture of him. He he took the time to to put it on a cabinet or something. But um, eventually, he he traveled uh, down to the States, and uh, he traded that that doorknob for a a Coleman camping stove, right? So uh, nothing too terribly exciting about a Coleman camping stove, but uh, if you started with a paperclip, you can see how this is starting to get exciting, right? So uh, he has his camping stove, and he's, he's driving around, and he actually had someone offer uh, clear out in California, hey, I've got a, I've got a Honda generator that I'll, that I'll trade you. And so he, he drove out there, and he, he traded them for the, for the generator. And uh, then someone back in New York said, you know, I actually need a generator. And so they, they said, well, I'll trade you for what, what they build a, an instant party Right? It, was a, it was a keg, it was a Budweiser sign, and, and, and that, was, that was supposed to be an instant party. Personally, I think you need friends, but that's, that's Kyle's problem, right? So um, he, he started trading this stuff up, and he ended up with the instant party. And, and so uh, he drove back up to, to Canada, because at this point, this had started to hit the press. And uh, there was a radio host that said, hey, I've got a, I've got a snowmobile that I'll, I'll give you. And so just in a, in a matter of a few trades, this guy has gone from a paperclip to a snowmobile. I'm starting to think that I should maybe try this, right? And so he, uh, he ends up with a snowmobile. And, and uh, as he's on the radio, uh, they said, is there anywhere you won't go for a trade? And I don't know why. He just thought this was funny. He said, yeah, the only place I won't go is uh, Yak, British Columbia, just this random city that he thought it'd be funny to make fun of kind of how the world likes to make fun of Cleveland, as, as you know, as Ohioans, right? So maybe this is a place Canadians make fun of, but he said, yeah, I'll go anywhere but there. So someone was listening, and they said, oh, actually, our, our town of Yak, British Columbia is, is, is pretty awesome. And so they said, we'll, we'll give you a free ski trip, a free, a free two-person trip to Yak, British Columbia, just to redeem their city. And so he traded the snowmobile on this, uh, this trip to Yak, British Columbia, and then he traded that for a box truck. Now, a box truck is not glamorous, but owning a box truck is kind of cool, and you can see how there's some dollars behind this. Then eventually, he, uh, he traded the, the box truck for a recording contract. If someone wanted to make an album, someone wanted to get some studio time, someone needed a producer, someone needed an audio engineer, that would be a big deal. And so you can see that he, he traded that for some studio time. And you can tell that this is about 10 years old when baggy clothes were much cooler, right? He kind of looks like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo in that picture. But he traded it for some studio time. Nonetheless... Then he traded that, that contract for, for studio time. Someone clear out in Arizona said, Hey, I actually need the studio time and I've got a duplex and I'll, I'll give someone a year's rent in Phoenix, Arizona. It's not the, the world's biggest apartment. It's the other half of, of my place. But, but if, if someone's willing to have that, I'll, I'll take the studio time and they can have a a year's, a year's rent in, in Phoenix. And here's where it gets a, a little weird, in my opinion. I don't mean to make fun of anyone's musical preferences, but this is where I think it starts to get funny and starts to snowball. Uh, someone, someone said, I'll take that year's rent, because I, uh, I live in that part of the country, and I actually work for a restaurant that's owned by Alice Cooper. If you don't know who Alice Cooper is, I would, uh, I would say maybe you could call him... Uh, an older version of Marilyn Manson, maybe. That might be a good good, uh, comparison, but he's a a musician who, uh, I don't think it's true, but there's there's always that rumor that that he used to throw live puppies out in the audience and all kinds of crazy stuff. Alice Cooper, probably not a children's musician, right? So uh, anyway, someone worked for him, and and they said, yeah, we'll we'll take the rent. Um, how about, how about I trade you one afternoon with, with Alice Cooper? Whoever wants this can, can get that. And so that's probably not a normal prize, but there are people that love Alice Cooper. And so these are some of the, the girls that, that took him up on it, and they ended up spending time with Alice Cooper. Now, this next trade, I personally think, is kind of backwards, although I'm not a huge fan of Alice Cooper. I understand that he's a celebrity, and that's kind of cool. He traded the, uh, the afternoon with Alice Cooper for a Kiss snow globe. Right, so so there there he is hanging out with Alice Cooper. They have the red paperclip. They're doing the whole thing. That's not the actual paperclip, as you can tell. Alice Cooper was trying to revive his career by the press of this. Good try, Alex. But he traded that afternoon for a Kiss snow globe. Now I don't know that. I feel like that's something that I would find at Goodwill. Maybe also I don't like Kiss, but uh, it feels like it's like a ten dollar thing. But apparently, if you're a Kiss fan, this is like rare and collectible and a big deal. I'm not a Kiss fan. Uh, but I may paint my face next week. Actually, let's all paint our faces and keep this theme thing going. This is Sweatpants Sunday. Next week will be paint your face like any member of KISS that you want Sunday. Uh, Gene Simmons Sunday would sound cooler because it's got some alliteration. But he, he did that nonetheless. They traded for the snow globe. And here's where it gets kind of crazy. Uh, because he was, he was contacted by, by a, a, an actor, by a, a producer that said, hey, I want that snow globe. And uh, I'll trade a role in my next movie for that snow globe. So some of us are into movies, we're into Hollywood, and, and maybe if you're not, you still would think it'd be a cool bucket list thing to say, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to be in a movie at some point. I can just say to my friends, I can, I can pause it when the main character checks into the hotel and say, that's me right there, the guy sneezing in the lobby, you know, or whatever. Probably not a glamorous role, but nonetheless, there's a role in a, in a movie. And so it's getting to be a, a pretty cool thing, starting out with a paper clip. And here's, here's where it happens, because someone said, yeah, I want to be in that movie. And in fact, I wanna, I wanna give you this house. It's not a great house. It's, 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 it's a house though, and that was your goal, and so here it is, right here. This is, this is the house that Kyle McDonald ended up with. He ended up, uh, taking possession of that. This town was excited to welcome him, and so he had a lot of people that, that showed up to move him in and to paint and to get things ready, but this guy started with one red paperclip. And then made some trades and kind of leveraged what was going on and ended up with a house. He, he used his, his influence. He, he used his, his money, his relationships, his ability to travel, his, his notoriety. The BBC picked this up and it got really popular. But he leveraged his influence for, for something bigger or better. And we've been in a, a series since last week. We've been talking about the book of Nehemiah. As we jump into to chapter 2 this week, I want us to, to look at that exact example. How can we use our influence How can we leverage our influence for something bigger or better? We all have things that that God has put on our heart. We all have things that that God has called us to do, things that, that we think we're walking toward, things that we know that God wants us to do. And sometimes those things seem foggy. Sometimes they seem out of reach. Sometimes we're not sure of the roadmap. And sometimes we need encouragement. But we know that God has called us to bigger and better things. And so our big idea, our goal for this morning is just to say that we should use our influence. We should use our influence. We should use our time, our money, our relationships, and leverage those things for the work of God. So I want to invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2. It's on page 371. you probably got a Bible in front of you, behind you, underneath you, in your seat there. If you don't own a Bible or you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to to take that Bible there on your seat home with you. Feel free to uh, consider that our our gift to you. We want you uh, reading God's Word and having a copy of that to read. And so we're going to be on page 371. Nehemiah chapter 2. I want to remind you where we were last week and, and kind of what this, this story looks like. The nation of Israel, as you know, many of you know, uh, they, were, they were God's chosen people. They were the country that God said, I'm going to build you up, I'm going to walk with you, I'm going to journey with you, I'm going to make you great. And the nation of Israel didn't always care about that promise. In fact, we see throughout the Old Testament that the, the spiritual timeline of the nation of Israel was kind of we're following God, we're not following God, we're following God, we're not following God, we're following God, we're not following God. And so eventually God said, your disobedience is is putting distance between us. It's, it's It's going to affect you. He said, your, your disobedience is going to separate you from me, and it's going to create a problem. And, and the nation of Israel didn't listen. And eventually, there, there were visiting nations that came in and defeated them. And they didn't just defeat them and say, okay, we're taking your flag down. You're not Israel anymore. They, they annihilated their culture. They tore down their temples. They tore down their walls. They, they dispersed their people and shipped them out to other nations and, and basically uh, made it so it was like the nation of Israel had, had never existed. And so in chapter 1, we saw this example where some people started going back uh, to the land that, that God had given them and there were, there was a, there were some people beginning to, to trickle in and Nehemiah was wondering, how is that going? How are my people? How is my country? Because he had grown up outside of where God had put them. He had grown up in this generation that had been displaced and, and kind of been put out. And, and when Nehemiah heard a report of how bad things still were for his people, it, it ripped him up inside. It broke his heart. He knew what God had promised them. He knew what God had been offering them to be his nation. He knew what God had called them to. And the fact that they were so far from that broke his heart. Last week we said that the things that that break God's heart, the things that break God's heart, the things that upset him, the things that cause him to to have compassion for us should, should also break our hearts. And we said when our heart lines up with God's heart, it can be a powerful thing. And so I want to take us to, to chapter 2 this week and continue to, uh, to look at this story. We're just going to read this and, and kind of pull out some things and see what God has for us. So let me read chapter 2 of Nehemiah, page 371. You can, you can follow along, underline something, take some notes if God puts something in your mind and in your heart. It says this in verse 1. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine, I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, Well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king... If it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests, because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River... I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, official, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate past the jackal's well and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley, instead inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me, and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. We see in the example of of Nehemiah, we see someone who who has a heart for the things that God has a heart for. We see someone who, who wants to do the things that God has put in his heart and the things that God has called him to do. We see an example of obedience, and there's some things that we can learn. We've called this series Nehemiah the Leader Within because I know and I trust and I believe that all of us have a calling that God has placed on our life. There are things that we all share in common, things that God has called us to, and there are specific things that God has called you to. What does it look like for us to to leverage who we are and where we're at and work toward those things? What does it look like for us to respond to the things that God has put on our heart and to successfully go after them and achieve them and honor God? I think there's a few things that we can learn from the example. I think a few things that we can, we can teach to our inner leader. A few things that we can, we can say to our inner leader to awaken our inner leader as we look at this story. The first thing is this, that, that we can leverage relationships. We can leverage relationships and we can leverage influence. I think we see that in the example of Nehemiah. I mean God put this on his heart and I, I love that it doesn't just say when Nehemiah went to talk to the king, he was he was kind of nervous. I think we've all talked to a boss and wondered that when we say, like, can I take two weeks of vacation back to back? Is is that okay if I do that? You know, we've all had that moment where we're like, I don't know if this is gonna happen. It doesn't just say he was nervous, it doesn't just say he was scared, it says he was terrified. Because this was a culture, when you talk to a king, if you like sneeze and it goes on the king's hand, he might just say off with his head and send you out, right? Even though he was a cupbearer, even though he was a big deal, talking to the king was a big deal. And yet Nehemiah said, God has made me a cupbearer. God has put me in this place for this time. God has given me this relationship. God has given me this position, this title, this platform. I'm going to use that for what God has put on my heart. I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm going to I'm going to leverage that. Nehemiah had influence, and he said, I'm willing to use that for what God has called me to do. I keep using the, the word leverage, and maybe some of you uh, instantly think that, that that means a lever. Maybe, maybe a, a better uh, word picture would be a teeter-totter, right? There, there's always uh, this magic of being a child and using a, a teeter-totter and the things that you can do on a teeter-totter. There's, there's a, a grown-up adult version right now at Kosai where if you pull on a rope, you can lift a Honda Civic, and it's pretty awesome if you haven't been to Kosai, right? My, uh, my boys love to go there, and it, it, they almost don't even really fathom how it works. They're just like pulling on a rope, and they're watching a car go up in the air, and they're like, how did I do that? And I'm like, leverage. You know, I try to explain it, and they don't get it at all. And so anyway, there's a, there's a day they'll get it, but it's so fun because you can, you, can, you can basically just take this leverage and take this concept that God has built, and you can lift a car. And I don't know if you're stronger than I am, but I'm not regularly lifting cars, even small light ones like a Honda Civic, right? And so that's what leverage means. Leverage doesn't mean like, hey, go out and work and lift, lift something, you know, like if I, if I lift this Bible, that's, that's not impressive. That doesn't take leverage, it doesn't use leverage. Leverage, when I think of leverage, I think of, of doing something that's out of my league, Right? Like lifting a car. Like saying, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how God is going to multiply this, but I'm going to pull on this rope and it's, it's going to lift a Honda Civic. This is, this is what Nehemiah was doing. He was saying, God's giving me this, this relationship. God's giving me this title. God's giving me this office. God's giving me these friends. He's giving me this platform. He's giving me this money. I don't know what God has given you. But Nehemiah leveraged those things for what God has put in his heart. I think some of us would look at that and say, yeah, he didn't just leverage him. He, he, he kind of risked and, and committed career suicide there. What if that wouldn't have happened? I think that that's what we can learn from his example. I think he, he knew what God had put in his heart. He knew what God was calling him to do. And he was saying, this is, this is why God has put me in this position. This isn't something I should be afraid of. This isn't something I should avoid. I have this much money in my checking account, or I live in this neighborhood, or I have this job, or I'm on this board, or I have these friends, because God wants me to leverage those things for his name, for his work, for his glory, for the gospel. God has put me in this situation for right now. We should leverage our relationships and our influence for the work of God. I think another thing that, that we can learn from, from Nehemiah, you look on through this example and you look at how he did this, but Nehemiah was a man that, that always built a team. He was always taking people with him. He mentions that he, that he had a team and later on in this example, we see as the walls are rebuilt, the people that he would talk to, the people that he would recruit, the people that he would say, this is not a one-man job. Sometimes I, I think that, that we think that following God and doing what he has put on our heart is just something for us and then we get discouraged and we get down. You don't know every person in this room, but we are we are the church. We are here for each other, we share a relationship with each other, we encourage each other, we carry each other, we serve together, we complement each other's gifts. We are the church. Nehemiah built a team. We have teams that exist in our church, but we're part of a greater team. I think often we we forget about that team or we don't take advantage of that team. What are what are some some pros to working on a team? Well, it's not lonely. There's always someone to talk to. There's someone to tell when you face a problem. There's someone to help you with a problem. There's someone to encourage you. There's someone to laugh with. There's someone that may know a solution that you don't know. There's someone that can teach you something that you don't know. There's someone that you can teach something that that they don't know. And many hands make light work. And so if God has put something great in your heart, if God is calling you to do something, and and sometimes you're tempted to think, I can't I can't do that. I can't do that right now. I'm in a phase of life where I can't do that. Know that all throughout the Bible we see an example of of leaders that God has called building a team and functioning in a team. And taking shelter in that team and not trying to be out front and doing everything on their own. Noah didn't build the ark alone. Nehemiah didn't build this wall alone. He built a team. He put people in places where they could succeed. That's the next thing that that we can learn from him. As we look at the example, you can maybe have a chance to to read on in these chapters this week, chapters three and, and chapter four, but Nehemiah put people where their passion was. The way that, that city gates would, would work, obviously it's, it's, it's just like a, a road would go around a city now. There are roads in this town and in your town and in your city that you're more passionate about than other towns, right? I care about the town that I, that I live in more than the town that you live in. I'm sorry, that might sound selfish. That's just the truth, right? And I care about the street that I live on and the street that I drive on more than the one that you live on and you drive on. And I'm, I'm really embarrassed to admit that, but that's just the truth. When, when I was growing up, there was a, there was a, a brother and, and sister that had a house at my home church. This is a small town. And uh, one summer they said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna close this street, We've got, we've got some, some sewage work we need to do, and the pipe's bad. And so they, they started this work. They put up the road closed signs, and and they, they brought in some dirt, and they started to tear it up. And I don't know if they hit a budget crisis or what, but the, the city realized that, you know what? That's kind of at the end of the street, and we could just really treat that, that street more like a, a dead end. And so... I think 16 years passed before they they finished working on that street. These people once had an easy way to work. They'd go down the hill, out to the highway. They'd be on their way. And and now they had to drive clear around through this whole development because no one cared about their street. They cared about their street. They kept asking the city. And I think the city was probably thinking, yeah, you're the only people we're hearing from. Everyone else is just saying, save money, cut costs. And so there are places that you're more passionate about. You're more passionate about your neighbor's than I am about your neighbors. Most of you, I don't know your neighbors, and you don't know my neighbors. And you're more passionate about your coworkers than I am about your coworkers. Hopefully, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. I just don't work where you work, and I don't know your coworkers. I don't work out where you work out. I don't volunteer where you volunteer. I don't coach in the places that you coach. You don't coach in the places that I coach but God has planted us and put us in specific places and he's given us gifts and he's given us a passion for where he has put us. Nehemiah knew what God had called him to do. He built a team to do that and then he plugged people in where their passion was. He said, hey, you're gonna live in this corner of the city. You're gonna be by this part of the wall. You probably don't want other nations breaking into that wall and hurting you and your family, right? Then why don't you build that part of the wall? Why don't you take care of that? Why don't you make it so good that you can be super proud of it and you can know that your family is safe? Nehemiah plugged people in where their their passion was and he put them where their purpose was and he said, this is how God has called us to move. This is how God has asked us to move. Sometimes I think we have to recognize that God has put us in a specific place for a reason. God has you living in the apartment or in the house that you're in because he wants you to reach the people that live around you. It's not just random chance. Sometimes we think like, yeah, I just picked a place because the rent was cheap or because it worked out or because they, they would give me a six-month lease instead of a 24-month lease or, yeah, the financing worked. I just, this is where I ended up. And you really think that, that God didn't know you were going to end up there? You really think that God didn't know that every day when, when you and that other person get home from work at 542 that you're going to make eye contact and, and talk about the weather and talk about sports and talk about how your kids won't let you sleep at night? You really think that that you could exist in a place or in a job or in an organization or you really think that your your kid just happens to be on that soccer team? No, God has planted you in a place for a reason. And if we're gonna do what God has put in our hearts, we're gonna build teams of of people that are gonna respond to that. We have to realize that, that God has put us in certain places and it's our job to be passionate about those things. It's our job to leverage those things it's our job to, to build what God is building in the specific relationships, in the specific location where we are. So what can we learn from the example and from the story of Nehemiah? That he was an absolutely perfect leader and everything was great and ended up okay. There was a problem. He was upset. He got some money. He built the wall. And then they all did a song and dance at the end, just like a Disney movie, right? Right? No, I was kind of setting you guys up, i got to be honest. I only read through verse 18 because things, things are not perfect for our good friend Nehemiah. There are some things that, that start to happen, and so we want to look on at this. We want to, we want to see what goes on, and, and I, there's, there's something that you can know. When God calls you to something, you can probably expect that there will be some frustration. You can probably expect that, that everything is not going to go perfect, and you can expect that you're going to face some opposition. I, uh, a few weeks ago, I, I told the story of when I met my wife, Kristen, I think I faced some opposition. I, like Nehemiah, knew that God had called me that I was supposed to marry her, right? So I strolled up to her and said something like that, hey, baby, God wants me to marry you. And I think she was, uh, she was you know, just showing me what opposition looked like and saying like, no, God didn't tell me that, right? And so it took a while, but I, I wore her down. And so when God calls you to something, you're going to face opposition, Kristen's going to hear about this later. It's not going to go well for me. But when we, when we decided that we were going to start Movement Church, we said, well, eventually we're going to get to a place where there's going to be services and chairs and people and we're going to need a place to meet. And maybe you've heard me say this before. But one night we came, to the, we came to Hilliard and we said, all right, maybe it would be cool to meet at that school or the community center or this place. And so we got our launch team together. There were like 20 of us. And we're like, let's go to all of those places and let's, let's pray over these places and see what God will do. And the next day we had set up meetings with a lot of these places. And by like 10.30 a.m. on a Monday, we had heard no from all of these places that we had taken our launch team to the parking lot to pray over and say, God, go before us, give us favor. We know you've called us to build a church. We know you want us in the city of Hilliard. We know you, we, you want us on the west side of Columbus. Let's see you move and do great things. And, and we prayed and it wasn't just that nothing happened. We got, we got no's. And so sometimes when you're called to do something, There are going to be moments of favor. There are going to be moments where you're thinking, yeah, God's moving and God's working. But there's also going to be some frustration. And so here here are some things that happened to Nehemiah. Here are some things that we can learn from his example. Because when God calls you toward something, you can expect attacks. You can expect to feel attacked at different times. And you can expect it to not be great. You don't have to turn to all these things, but I want to just read some of things to you. We already skipped over this one, but let's go back to chapter 2, verse 9. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. Nehemiah wasn't just traveling like, everything's great, God called me to work. They sent an army with him. Do you know why you send armies with people? because they want to kill you, right? They don't, they don't send armies with people, just like uh, stand around him and make him look cool, you know, maybe like all march in unison, it'll kind of be like choreography, or you guys will look real regal. No, they sent an army with him because people were out to kill this guy. Other people weren't saying, hey, come back here and, and make Israel great again. Take our land and, and take our crops in this area and the things that we've been bl- been blessed by that, that God meant for you, come back and take those. People wanted to stop this guy and wanted to shut him down, and so there's an army with him. He's facing ridicule. He's facing danger. I don't know if you've read this story. Maybe you don't know the story. Skip on over to chapter four if you want to or write this down. Read it later this week. But there's a man named Sam Ballot, and says he was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that. This guy is super encouraging, right? How many of us have, have ever uh, had to build something from like Ikea or Walmart, like weird conversation that has screws that don't even make sense, and and someone stands over you and says like, doesn't that one thing go over there? Are you sure you did that right? That's that's bad enough, right? Well, this guy is standing there mocking Nehemiah. He's not mocking what God has called him to. He's He's mocking his people. He's mocking everything about him. He's saying that he's a joke and his, his leadership is a joke and so Nehemiah is facing this. People are, people are out to kill him and people are out to mock him and, and tear down what he's doing. He's, he's seeing attacks. Chapter four, it goes on. at verse six, it says this. At last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. That feels pretty good, right? Verse seven says this. This is that Sanballat guy again. Man, he's a bad person. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashtodites heard the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired. They were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Same guys that are, that are looking to rough, rough him up, that are looking to mock him. Now they're coming to send him into confusion and I'm assuming that maybe there, there could have been some punches thrown if we had been there, Right? These are people that are are not celebrating what he's doing. They're not out for what he's doing. Sometimes we think that that when God calls us towards something, if if like one thing goes wrong, God wants me to to share my faith with my neighbor. Oh, I saw he put up a for sale sign. He'll probably be gone tomorrow. I guess I should never talk to him again. We we don't investigate things more. We don't talk to people. I know God wants me to, to share the gospel with my coworkers, but one time seven years ago, me and this guy had an awkward interaction in a meeting, and so we don't make eye contact anymore, so I'm not, I'm not going to share with that guy. Sometimes we, we face attacks, and we, we, we face things that we think discourage us, and we think that God is saying, whoa, 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 stop, I didn't, I didn't really put that in your heart, I didn't really ask you to do that, you've, you've faced ridicule, you've been in danger, you should stop and go home, and, and just, just forget I ever mentioned that. No, we can learn from the example of Nehemiah that sometimes God puts something in our heart. Sometimes God God wants us to leverage our life and leverage our relationships and our time and our money. And sometimes we have to push through those attacks. Here's some more fun stuff that that Nehemiah faced. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. Will we ever be able to build the wall by ourselves? Just starting to, starting to whine, starting to get discouraged themselves, starting to feel lazy. We already celebrated the fact, Nehemiah built a team, he was a great leader, and now the people are saying, like, this is stupid, Nehemiah, we don't want to do this, we want to go home. And so he's, he's, he's facing the attack of, of morale, he's seeing laziness, and yet he keeps moving. He keeps going. And there are more people threatening on his life, you could go on in chapter 4 there, if you, if you were to read it, you would see that, that the things were not great. There were people that are saying, yep, yeah, we're going to come and mess you up. We're going to come and beat you up. We're going to come and kill you. We know you might have some army, but we've got, we've got a little more of an army, and, and it's time to get rowdy, Nehemiah. We're going, to, we're going to come at you. We're going to intimidate you. We're going to hurt you. We're going to take you away from what God has called you to do. And so he faces wrath. He faces ridicule. He faces laziness of his people. He faces discouragement. He faces fear. He even faces some internal strife. His people themselves are not always excited about what God has called them to Chapter 5 says this. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we've mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live we've already sold some of our daughters and we're helpless to do anything about it for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others and so there's a moment where everybody's not on the same page some of the people have more money than other people and they're making loans and they're they're holding it over their head like loan sharks and they're they're saying yeah i'm gonna need your son to come and work for me yeah i know we're supposed to be rebuilding that wall but you owe me a lot of money yeah i know god has called us to this great thing but this isn't about god this isn't about us this is about me and you and you owe me money And so the nation of Israel, these people that have been put in this place, they're they're not responding as they should. They're not feeling called. They're starting to to bicker and and get mad about what's going on. They're starting to argue amongst themselves. They're starting to resent each other. And we know that none of those things ever happen in churches, right? Because churches are perfect places where everyone always acts perfect. No, sometimes God has called us to do something. Sometimes God has called us as a church to do something, to respond. And we get tied up in, in drama in relationships, right? She wore the same sweater that I did last week. I'm never going to serve on a team with her again, right? Even, even dumber things. They didn't sit by me or they sat by me and I want someone else to sit by me or you feel like you're, you're just in opposition with a person. There are all kinds of different ways that Satan drives a wedge in us and we, we learn to think that we're against someone and we let, we let Satan divide us against what God has called us to. Sometimes their division, and Nehemiah faced all of these things. People mocked him, people discouraged him, people wanted to kill him. His own people were lazy, his own people were fighting, but he kept marching toward what God had called him to. He kept building toward what God had called him to. We already said this, but he gets, he gets threatened again in chapter 6. There are people that, that want to kill him again. It's actually that same guy. He's like officially the, the villain, right? If, if he were uh, if he were in Lion King, he would be the mean uncle. We all know who Ballad is in this story. He's just a bad dude that wants to hurt people and, and wants to kill him, right? And so he's, he's constantly threatening Nehemiah, and just when you think it's gone, he's back. So he kind of lets Nehemiah face fear, and then he comes in and threatens to kill him. And then he lets Nehemiah's own people discourage him, and then he comes in and threatens to kill him. So like every other attack is this guy just saying like, hey I'm still here still, still might beat you up okay watch your back and yet there's there's other stuff here's the here's the craziest one chapter 6 verse 10 says this later I went to visit Shemaiah, the son of Deleah and the son of Mehetabel who was confined to his home he said let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut your enemies are coming to kill you tonight But I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat, there's that guy again, had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse me and discredit me. This guy has prophets from his own people lying to him and saying, you need to do this, you need to change this, this. These people have been paid off. And so these men of God, these messengers from God, these people that are supposed to prophesy in individuals' lives and, and into what's going on in the nation are lying and are being bought by God. And so sometimes we've got to understand that, that Satan will use anything to discourage us. God has called us towards something. We're, we're marching toward that, that thing Sometimes God will even, God will even uh, let us be discouraged in some way. And, and we think that, that that's saying that we should stop, but he's calling us to, to march forward. Sometimes Satan might even, might even say, I'm going to take this person that you think is a Christian. I'm going to take this person that everybody thinks is greater. Everyone thinks is wise or knows something. And I'm going to use them to discourage them, discourage you. I'm going I'm to use them to, to kind of mess with your mind. I'm going to use them to, to pull back what God has put on your heart, to attack you, to make you slow down. And yet, Nehemiah kept going. He kept pushing. He had built a team. God had put something on his heart. He had been called, and he leveraged everything in his power, everything in his relationships, everything he knew toward the work of God. He didn't just lean into that. He leveraged that to do something greater than himself, something bigger and better, something that God had called him to. So what can we learn from the example of Nehemiah? We can learn how to respond. We can learn how to build a team. We can learn how to empower people and use their gifts and their passion. We can know that we can expect attacks when God calls us towards something. We can expect attack after attack after attack and to be ridiculed and to be mocked and maybe to even face wrath and maybe even to be discouraged by Christians or other people that we thought would encourage us. What can we do from Nehemiah's example? Well, I want to take you back to chapter 1 where we were last week because this is the beginning of what God did in his heart. Again, this is page 371. And in verses 3 and 4, this is his original call. This is what you have to remember when you're in the midst of something that God has called you toward, when you're discouraged, when you're not doing great, when you're feeling attacked and you're wondering, why am I doing this? Why is this worth caring about? Why is it worth pushing on? This is what God had put in Nehemiah's heart when he heard about his people. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah remembered that this is the basis of everything that God was doing in his heart. He knew that there were people that God wanted to be in relationship with. God wanted to be close to. God wanted to know his country and know his people. And these people were far from God. They were nowhere near God. They weren't able to know God. And it upset him. It tore him up. It ripped at his heart and it left him with a ton of emotions that he had to work through. That's what we need to remember as we're walking toward what God has called us to do. As we're looking to do God's work for our lives to minister to people, when we get attacked, when we get drugged down, when we face ridicule, when we face wrath, when we face discouragement from so called Christians or from other people, we need to remember our calling. Remember the first time that God put that on your heart. Remember the first place that you remember having God break your heart for other people. Remember God's heart for people. Remember how you were called to respond. Remember your calling. That there are people who are far from God. And you want them to be able to find their way back to God. You want them to be able to know God in the way that they were created to know God. You want them to know God in the way that they were intended to be in relationship with God. You want them to know God in the way that you know God. In the way that you feel the love of God. In the way that God gives you life. You want them To have that same access. So remember your calling. Here's another thing, and a final thing I think we can learn from the example of Nehemiah. Chapter 1, up there in in, in verse 1, first column, it says In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, that is when this story begins. That's when this story takes shape. And it happens quick and it progresses over a few chapters. And sometimes we don't, we don't catch the timing of things. And so today we looked at chapter two and we're like, God put something on his heart. Then he went into the king and said, give me money. I got to build this wall. And everything was great. You guys know how seasons work, kind of, except in Ohio. We really don't know how they work because some days it's 70 and then we're back to winter and then it's raining. But theoretically, we all learned this in like first grade, right? We know how seasons work. And so it says in late autumn, I don't know when you would say late autumn is. But I think we've all got an idea, right? It's, it's before Christmas, right? Late autumn. Look at, look at chapter 2, the first words there. Early the following spring. There's some months between this. I think if you do some research, you'd see in the, in the calendar and the way that this works out, you're probably talking about a progression of four months, you're probably talking about significant time being passed. And so we're thinking like, yeah, I'm reading chapter 1. God breaks Nehemiah's heart. He says a prayer for like eight verses. And then he walks into the king and he's awesome. No, no, that's, that's not how it, how it is. And so sometimes we have to read between the lines and do a little research. It says in late autumn and then it says early the following spring. This prayer represents Nehemiah's heart for four months. He was saying, God, you have put this on my heart, and I don't really know what this means, but you won't let this go away, and I'm tore up about this, and I have emotions about this, and the things and the people that you have a heart for, I have a heart for, and I want to do something about that, and I don't exactly know what that looks like. He probably had a conversation where we went back and forth and said, you've made me the cupbearer, but if I mention something to the king, he might kill me, and I'm not sure if you want me in this place, and I don't know if I should do this. He prayed about this. He petitioned God. He went before God for days and for weeks and for months and said, God, you have put this on my heart. You have put these people on my heart. You've given me this platform. I want to do something about it. I don't know what that is, but please guide me. Please make that very, very obvious. Make it very clear what you've called me to and what you want me to do. And one day he's hanging out with the king and, and God opens the door. The king gives him a softball toss and says, hey, what's going on in your life right now? Why do you look a little sad? I believe that when we're running after the things that God has put on our heart, we have to remember our calling. We have to fight through attacks, but, but we have to continually pray and ask God to move and work. We don't know what that will look like. We don't know how that will happen, and it might seem impossible. I'm sure there was a moment, even though his heart was broken, that he was thinking, like, I'm one guy. I can't rebuild a wall. I, I, I can't even carry one tree. How am I going to line up a series of trees? How am I going to do this? What's this going to look like? I can't move these rocks. He could have become discouraged, and he could have let all these people get to him. Instead, he just said, God, this is where I'm at. This is what you've put on my heart. These are the people you've called me to, and I have no idea what that looks like. And he kept just going before God and saying, God, change my heart. Let me be dependent on you. Let me look to you. And I know that you'll take care of the rest. It might not be how I would design it. It might not be easy, but you're going to do this. And then he was willing to lean into what God had put on his heart. He was willing to leverage all of the people and places and things that he had and the things that were going on, the things that God was doing. He was willing to to leverage all of those things and put them on the line. But he was also willing to pray and depend on God and ask God to move, knowing that it would take a lot more than him. That's the thing with leverage. Leverage isn't about us. When I'm hanging out at Kosai lifting a Honda Civic, no one's sitting there thinking like, he's got to be the strongest dad in all of greater central Ohio. Look at his amazing arm strength. No, they're saying, how does that lever work? Man, whoever, whoever welded that platform that holds the car or the bolts that are holding that, those things are really strong. Sometimes when we're using leverage, it doesn't glorify us. And so remember your calling. But also know that you need to continually be going before God and saying, "God, I need you to show up. I need you to do something great. I need you to multiply this. I need you to make this big because this is what you put on my heart. And I believe that my heart lines up with yours. But I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how this is going to work." We've been uh, we've been talking about Easter and talking about the next couple weeks. There was, a, there was a time, as I said, that, that when Movement Church was getting started, we said, yeah, we think someday we'll have services, and there will be people there, and we'll get to worship, and we believe that people will come to know Jesus, people will hear the gospel, and that will be a good thing. And there was a time that, that we could have said that that seemed pretty crazy. In fact, one of those times we could have said that seemed pretty crazy was when we heard no from every possible place we wanted to meet. And yet we believed that God had put that on our heart that he wanted to build a church in Hilliard that would be a movement of people finding their way back to God so that people could know Jesus and so that they could take continual steps of obedience toward him. They could grow in their relationship with him. They could meet him and they could put down roots in that relationship. And so God has done that in some great ways. And Easter is one of those moments of the year where where people are, are open to being in church. People want to be in church with their families. And so for that reason, we're having two services this year because we looked at the numbers before and we, we believe that we need to do that to be able to accommodate the people that God wants to bring us. Now, some people would look at that and think, that's that's pretty crazy. That's pretty audacious. I don't know if we should do that. And there are moments that that can even seem like an uphill thing or that can seem discouraging. Have we ever done two services before? No. Does the planning seem a little crazy? Maybe. And yet, we know that that's what God has has called us to do. Our vision isn't a a one-time thing or a thing that you just care about when you first come to Movement Church and when you first give your life to Jesus. We should be continually upset and continually emotional about people that we know, people in our setting that don't know Jesus, people who are far from Jesus, that they don't have an an ability or a knowledge to know him like we do, to know love like we do, to know life like we do. And so we're, we're having two services on Easter to create an opportunity for people to meet Jesus, for people to begin a relationship with him, for people to find a home church where they can be planted and plugged in, and to know what some of us know and trust in the form of a church and in the form of a relationship with Jesus. We're not doing that because it's, it's all about hype. We're doing that because we believe and we know that God's heart is broken for his people, people that were created to know him and people that now don't know him. And so we're, we're going to do some things that, you know, not to be flashy, but we're going we're gonna to have a, a photo booth and we're going to have first impressions ready to treat your friends and family with respect and with kindness and give them an, uh, an opportunity to, to be in a church and think, hey, these people aren't as weird as I always thought they were. And we're going to have coffee and some of the things that we always do. And we'll have t-shirts and we want to we wanna make sure that they have a good experience. But I want you to know that all of those things don't happen unless we push through discouragement and we push through the, the things that, that sometimes we let stop us. This is is an opportunity for us to respond to God's heart, to make our heart line up with God's heart, for us to see something powerful happen. But we need you to be passionate about the place that that God has put you in. I'm not going to invite your neighbors, although, just so you know, if they live in Hilliard, they'll be getting a mailer, or maybe they already got it, advertising this service. And so you can say, hey, did you get something in your mail from from Movement Church? That's, That's my church but you'll need to be the one that has the follow-up conversation. You'll need to be the one that talks to the people that you coach with. You'll need to be the one who talks to the people that you work with. We've, uh, we've got these cards. We've been telling you about them. There's some on your seat. We put them there, not because we want to be annoying, but because we, we think there's power in a simple invite. Some examples of, of ways that, that you could use this, it, it's not rocket science. Sometimes you can walk up to someone and say, hey, I would love for you to go to church with me on Easter. I'll pay for your lunch afterwards and, and hand someone a card. You could, you could ask if, if you can put them in a favorite business that you go to. Might sound crazy, but I know some of you have relationships with a Starbucks barista, like we can't even fathom, right? There are some of you that that is, that is your place, and so if you said, hey, my church is doing this, can I put some of these on the counter? They'd be like, yeah, cool, sure. Some of you could, could hand these to your barista or hand these to your mechanic, and that wouldn't seem crazy because you have a car that breaks down once a week, and you're best friends with your mechanic, right? Or you go to Starbucks twice a day, and like I said, you're best friends with your barista. There are places and relationships and situations and platforms that God has given you that you can leverage for the work of God. And I hope that we're excited about that. I hope that we're not just excited about that, but we're willing to to walk through discouragement and walk through fear and walk through ridicule and, and go through those things, just like Nehemiah did, just like his example for us, so that we can see God move, so that we can see God work. We said today that we should leverage Our influence, our platform, our money, our times, our relationships for God. But the question is not, should we? I think the Bible makes that clear. The story of Nehemiah makes that very clear in many, many different situations. The question is, will we? If you don't pass out one of these cards, that's that's fine. I think those are a good tool. But the point is, do you have a heart for people? Do you have a heart for people to know Jesus? Do you have a heart for lost people the way that God has a heart for lost people? Are you willing to have a conversation and to, to give an invite? to people that you work with, to people that live next door to you? Do you care about them? And are you willing to lean into those things, to leverage those things, to know your calling and to pray for God to show up and multiply your calling and do something bigger and do something better? That's my prayer for us as a church. That's my prayer that that we will use God's leverage so that he can do something bigger and better through us for Easter. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are bigger, you are better than anything that that we try and anything that we do. God, thank you for the example of Nehemiah. Thank you for the way we see him battling through adversity and battling through things that, that he could have quit and walked away from. God, we want to be people who walk toward your calling, walk toward the things that you have put in our hearts, who walk toward the things that you've asked us to do, who battle through discouragement and and all of the things that that could stop us. God, help us to to remember the things that you've called us to, remember the things that you've given us a heart for, and to pray that you will give us leverage, that you will give us the boldness to use our leverage, Lord, and, and to thank you and ask you to show up and even create leverage, Lord, to work in our relationships, to work in our workplace, to work in our neighborhoods so that we can be a connection for people to know you. God, I pray that we'll be a church, we'll be a group of people that are burdened for that, that are upset for that. God, be with us as we go this week. Empower us to to move and work and to be your church outside of these walls. It's in your name I pray, amen.